the mindset is the mindset is above all. How do people at the top of the game do what they do? And what can young players learn from them to help them on their own journey and help them achieve their dreams in the game? That's the question and this podcast will give you the answers. Welcome to today's episode of the Offfield Rugby Pod. I'm your host Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international, now mindset and performance coach. And if you have not done so, hit that subscribe button so that you never miss another podcast episode. And if you're out there and you love this podcast, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. That really helps because the more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more the different platforms say, hey, this podcast is helping people, people are enjoying it, maybe we should show it to people who have never heard of it before. And that way the podcast grows organically. Also, you can send the podcast on to some friends and I would greatly appreciate that. Today I'm chatting with James Kent, who is a skills coach at Stade Francais and has previously worked with the French national team and Rugby Canada. We chat about how to analyse opposition, how you can find edges to win the mental battle against your opponent, and James talks about how Stad put an emphasis on player welfare and mental health. We also get into the effect that social media can have on players, and James gives some pretty interesting insights here. This is an area I'm pretty interested in, and if you have any thoughts, would love to hear them. You can contact me directly through my website, offfieldrugby.com, and I'll get back to you from there. Just want to say a quick thanks to Molly Crypton for your review on Apple Podcasts. Molly said, interesting chat with Bernard, his journey from being a player to coaching. A great insight into visualization and the great benefits which result. She is referring to the recent chat I had with Bernard Jackman and he spoke about the power that visualization had for him. And visualization is a mental skill which helps you stay calm under pressure, improves your physical skills and makes you feel more confident when you're out on the field. I've created a visualization guide for you that you can download for free through the link in my Instagram bio, which is at offfieldrugby or through my website, offfieldrugby.com. So here's episode number 63 with James Kent. Dealing with money can be very stressful and especially with everything that's happening in the world right now and stock markets crashing. If you're not an expert, it can be difficult to know what to do. Sparks Wealth is an Irish financial planner and they are experts when it comes to dealing with finances and helping guide you on what's best for your situation. You can book a free call with Will now at Sparks Wealth on their website sparkswealth.ie. Recently a family member of mine did just that and was so happy they did so. They said Will guided them through everything in a simple easy to understand way no jargon and it was a brilliant experience. So that's sparkswealth.ie. So how have you been since we chatted last? Been pretty well, been busy. Um, you know, the the season's underway, top 14 season's underway. I had a daughter, you know, it's all, yeah, it's all been merged into one, so it's been, uh, 
has been a busy last uh, last few weeks, but um, yeah, been loving it. Yeah, congrats on the arrival. Thank you. And you're still in Luxembourg? So at the moment, I'm back and forth uh, between Lux and Paris. Um, because the birth was in Luxembourg, I, uh, my wife stayed here and then I would uh, go back and forth. So uh, Wednesday being a, a down day for us, um, you know, I'm able to come in on Monday morning, get the train in, come back Tuesday night here, uh, have Tuesday night, Wednesday night, go back on Thursdays and, you know, sort of split my time between the two. Um, you know, for the time being, it's it's working. And then once we're, uh, we're a bit more stable than um, my wife and daughter will, uh, will come over to Paris. Nice. And so what kind of, what time in the morning are you getting the train at? It's, it's a, um, it's a 4.30 wake up call, which used to, used to be a bit hard, but I'm, I'm pretty much up at that time anyway now. So um, yeah, 4.30 and then I'll, I'll head down to the station for, for six. So 5.59 and train very precise and then um, it shoots me into to Paris probably around uh, depends it could be 8 8.50 um, depending a little bit on uh, on how the, how it's all going traffic wise and then head over to Stade Jean Bois and uh, yeah we start the day so Mondays are you know if we if we played the weekend before it's a bit of a later start um, Thursdays are the the earlier start so i'm more under pressure to get from the station to the stadium in good time at rush hour so yeah that's the the thursday mornings are the the challenging ones hectic yeah and what would a monday like a typical monday be like then when you get to the stadium so what you get there maybe what 9 30 or something yeah i get there about 9 30 um we'll generally would have had a a a review with the coaches about the, the game. Um, you know, if there's some players there, maybe even have a sit down with them, have a coffee with them, uh, maybe show some clips of, of the game um, or talk about some, some clips that we've sent uh, via via WhatsApp or via, um, via Huddle. And then, um, and then we're into the review meetings and that could vary as far as length. It could vary who... Uh, who drives it, whether they get the staff drive it, whether the players drive it. And then um, and then we'll have a sort of a light session, a sort of clarity session um, in the afternoon. So it's, you know, a lot of it is still based on getting the guys right and getting them recovered for the for the weekend ahead. But uh, as well, closing closing the book on, um, on the weekend before that. Yeah, and so... Is there work to be done? Like probably is, but on a Sunday then. So if you play Saturday, team play Saturday afternoon, then what does Sunday look like? Sunday for us, I mean, for example, the last uh, last game against um, against Bayon, we played at home Saturday 5pm and afterwards I probably stuck around the stadium until 11-ish um, just trying to to go over the game, cut a few things that I can then send on to the players. Um, and Sunday will be more of the same. And then we'll just be looking at different things. And then I'll probably start as well. I'll, I've had a glance at the opposition for the following week. 
generally maybe starting on the Friday beforehand, so about eight days, eight days beforehand. Um, and then if we get the their most recent game, then uh, probably watch watch some of that as well, and then just start you know looking at uh, different areas of it. Yeah, and what kind of things would you be looking for when you're looking at the opposition? Because you're you're a skills coach, so you're you're a bit of everything, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I personally I enjoy looking at uh, the individual you know tendencies that players might have. Uh, whether it's defensive tendencies, um, ticks that they might have in attack that might, you know, be a trigger for uh, a play or um, try, just trying to understand how they think and how they play. Um, I also look at the kicking game a little bit, um, restarts, look at their aerial skills, how they fare, um, you know, what do their back three look like, Um Speed of their ruck ball. You could you could you could go down as as many rabbit holes as you like, and then I suppose every game is slightly different, and they've all got their their different stars and their different key men. So um, I generally start by looking at some of their key men, and then maybe I find something else along the way. Um, generally, you'll find something you probably didn't see. Um, you know, a few days before. So there's always always something something new to pick up. Yeah, 100%. And I love what you said there about um, looking for ticks or different things that the certain individual players have. And something that I used to do all the time uh, with lineouts, watching opposition lineouts, I'd like look at the lineout caller and see like how he walks into lineouts and see what he's doing and what who's he looking at and when they go to a certain ball what does he do beforehand what does the hooker do and because it's all pretty basic when you like anyone's line you know you have your triggers or you have your ways of being and that can I remember just having a lot of success at times with that you kind of can you know what they're doing nearly or it could be the same with a t- I've never did but a 10 or a nine or the way they set up as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree in the way, you know, the mechanics of their kick or um, whether they wind up longer for a long, for a long kick and does that give us more time to charge them down um, where they like to stand? You know, they, they like to play on the game line. Do they like to sit a bit deeper in the pocket um, depending where they are on the field? But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I remembered reading a story. He might, you might correct me if I'm wrong. I think it might have been Agassi, Agassi and Sampras, was it? And uh, I think it was Agassi had seen that there was a a tick that on every serve, Sampras would look a certain way or have a certain tick, which he knew would mean that he would serve in that particular area. So every time he was able to respond, and he wouldn't do it you know, back to back to back because he wouldn't want to give it away. He wouldn't want to know that he knew. And uh, so I, I, ever since I read that story, again, I, I can't be 100% sure it was Agassi on him, Boris Beckick and Sampras. But, but um, yeah, it got me really intrigued into knowing, you know, the mindset of, of, of athletes. And you know, like you say, everyone has a little something, um, whether conscious or, or unconscious, uh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, little, a little giveaway maybe. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I haven't heard that one before, but um, 
Yeah. And it's, I think as a player, you know, you want to focus on yourself and, and get your stuff right. But when you can get like a little insight or something like that, like it can be massive because you said their mindset and, you know, like you can get so under your opposite number skin and like just take them out of the game. If you can just have just something like just do a little bit of prep, like I suppose normal players, they do it themselves. Pro players have you. But when you can get just something, something small like that can be massive, have a massive knock on effect. I think it's interesting that you, you say that, you know, the pro players have us. I think they probably get a lot out of it if they've found out something themselves. They, you know, they'll feel like they're either for them, for their personal um, preparation, knowing something about their opposite man will give them that comfort and that satisfaction um, going into the game. But as well, maybe from a, a team dynamic, you know, they think that they're, that, they can, you know, bring something to the team and bring something of value in contributing. Um, and I think maybe maybe it's up to us to say, have a look at this particular player. What does he do? What can you see? Um, and then for them to sort of decipher what, I mean, again, it depends what kind of player you're working with. But I think a lot of the the playmakers, they like to, to identify the space themselves. They, you know, they're guys who... I was. Uh, I heard that Finn Russell, for example, he's he's very big on doing his opposition analysis, and he'll sit down and have a good look at uh, at the opposition, what they do. And I think you know a lot of a lot of the playmakers, especially guys who like to attack the line, will want to have an understanding of what makes the opposition tick. Um, and I think you know you empower the players to do that as well. Um, by leading them in that direction. But I think it's a, it's a powerful tool. Um, I know there's guys in the NRL that used to, you know, the, I suppose sledging was a bit, it's a bit more common uh, in the NRL, but, you know, they'd look up all the all the personal facts to, to be able to, you know, bring it out on the, on the pitch and, like you say, get under their skin. So it's a, it's an art form and I think, you know, it's a, it's another way of, of competing and, it's up to you to keep it cool if if you if you're you know on the receiving end of it. Yeah, on that definitely. Well, that's uh, NRL Australians in general, I think. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, possibly. I'll yeah, I'll tell you a funny one. Uh, so Mike Rota coached me in Lansdowne and back in Ireland, and he was the Irish twenties coach at the same time. And back when Luke McGrath, I think Dan Levy, a few of them were playing Irish twenties against Wales. No, against England, against England. And Ross Moriarty was number eight for England. And Mike knew his dad, played with his dad back in the day. And he said his dad's a hothead. He always used to get wound up and blow off or whatever. So his son could be similar. So he told the lads this. And then they found out some stuff like that. I don't know what exactly they found out about him, but he he lost the head. And he's, yeah. he spear tackled Luke McGrath 10 minutes, 10 minutes into the game, got a straight red card and anyway, got sent off. And I don't know how the final, how it went from there, but exactly what you're saying and uh, yeah. got under his skin and he lost the head. And um, yeah, funny one. I mean, it's, it's what we can, we can say that uh, the, the old cliche of rugby being a gentleman's game and or thugs game played by gentlemen, but you know, when you're talking about competitive advantages, you look at other sports, I'd say the vast majority 
have that element to it, whether it's cricket, whether it's um, basketball, whether it's NFL, especially NFL. I mean, I don't know if, if they're any they're that witty at their sledges, but it's more very direct um, verbals. But there's an element to it, I think, in every sport. And part of being, you know, at the top of your game is not to be phased um, by things like that. And, you know, I... I look on the, the bookshelf behind you and I see, you know, names like Tiger Woods and you're thinking guys like Tiger Woods, guys like Federer, you didn't see them phased when they were at the peak of their game. You didn't see them phased very often. Uh, no matter if there was grunting in front of Federer and they would try and throw him off uh, that way or, you know, they always stayed very composed. And I think that, you know, they gave nothing away and that was partly what made them so successful. hundred percent. Yeah, you're dead right. And, and it is a part of it in that sense. And, whatever the verbals are, but it's like, it's showing dominance over your opposite number or opponent as well. And that if you can make them crack or break, because that's like you say, the very top don't crack or break and whatever way you do it, obviously within the laws of the game or, you know, you do that and yeah, that's being better. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree completely. And I think it's, it's maybe something that's, you, you said I was more in other sports, but um by starting from a technical and tactical point of view and what you can pick up from video, I think it's uh, it's definitely a stepping stone into getting more personalised and, and getting to know your your opposition man. Yeah, for sure. And I suppose it's different at the top level. There's so little, like, you know, there's so much analysis. All teams are very similar. There's the It's like marginal gains at the very top. You know, at lower levels, you can definitely see things like I remember playing Premier League here and I was like that prop is immobile let's go around the front of the mall you know like you know just things that are, are just too easy but yeah you can have such um yeah you can have huge gains um by finding those little things yeah and I think the the other th- aspect that, that helps at the uh in the professional game is that the guys know each other very well you know if they've played in rep teams before uh, whether they currently play in rep teams, whether they played uh, alongside, you might get two former All Blacks going at it in a top 14 game. They'll know each other inside out because they played together at the Hurricanes and then played together at the All Blacks. But now they're playing against each other. So they'll know what each other's tendencies are. And, um, you know, the same guys from the French team going up against it. And maybe they played at the same club last year. And so, you know, we, 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 I suppose we, rely on a lot of intel as well from guys arriving from other clubs um, and you know the same thing when a guy leaves your club to go to another club you can you can you know bet your bottom dollar that he'll be he'll be giving a few words of advice or he his pass off his uh, his left is a bit weaker or you know he does not being put under pressure when he's uh, when he's exiting so yeah I think that's all part of it and that's the nature of the professional game yeah, 100%. And you mentioned there like all blacks and, you know, a lot. there's not as many foreigners in the top 14 now as there was eight or 10 years ago. But are there a lot of them um, or many just English speakers or people who don't speak French within STAD at the moment? Um, this year, this year, there aren't that many. The foreigners have got a basic understanding of French. Um I suppose we're we're in a position where we have Paul Custard as well, who uh, who, who does the defence, and he's just arrived, so he, he's learning French as well as he goes. But 
for the English speakers, I suppose it's good to have a native speaker. Um, you know, with Kaivis Podgita, South African, we've got myself, um, and then Gonzalo and Gonzalo Casada and Julianarius Lawrence Ampera, they they all can speak English. So um I suppose that helps in the sense that they don't feel too um out of the loop and it helps them you know adjust to the uh to the well firstly the team and the lifestyle and it's uh I can I can only imagine for for some of those guys who come in there's a period of adaptation when you know it's high pressure and you're getting screamed at in French. You you know you need those basic basic understandings but they have French lessons the club offer French lessons as well. I believe every club uh, in France help the uh, the foreigners get used to it by offering them French lessons, staff and players. Yeah, and so to have a basic understanding, would you find might be coaching like in a bit of both? Yeah, no, I I do. I um, I suppose having the having the luxury of, of speaking French um, or being bilingual from a French mother and a, an Australian father. Um, I can switch back and forth um, fairly quickly in my in my in what in, in what I have to say, whether it's you know in team meetings or whether it's on the on the pitch, uh, without really thinking about it. Um, whereas when I was coaching in Spain, you know my uh, I suppose the way I, I use my language is probably a bit a bit simpler, a bit more to the point um, because I didn't have the same vocabulary that I do in English or French. So. Um, which is a positive and a, and a negative, but um, but I, I think being able to to adjust to the players around you, you know, the, the Fijian guys, will probably feel a lot more comfortable if you explain something in English and in French. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a big plus. Yeah, challenging for those boys. Like, there, I think English could be their second language. Um, yeah. You know, and so yeah, not easy. Like, you know, all these different things that sometimes you're watching a game and you know, you could be thinking like, oh, why is that player not whatever? Or, or like, there's so much that could be going on behind the scenes. Like, like I say, a player could just have arrived this season. And I know in France, there's short pre-seasons of five weeks or whatever. And it's like, they're trying to pick up a bit of French. Their English is their second language that they're being taught, half taught in. And then it's like thrown in at it, in at the deep end. Like it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And especially, I think if you're, <clears throat> You know, if you go to Paris, a major city, you know, one of the capitals of the world, so to speak. I mean, it's not. If you go to a smaller town, you could probably get a, get by a little bit easier. But if you're, you know, coming in from a smaller town, a smaller country, and yeah, you dropped right into the center of Paris, and there's so much going on, and you know, there really is that period of adaptation. And guys will have a certain reputation before they come. You know, he's a he's a gun he'll go he'll kill it until 14 but then there's this perception that you know they can automatically just adjust and continue playing the way they were before and I feel that like you said behind the scenes there's a lot more going going on and if the player's not found his feet off the field then it's going to be hard for them to to be all right on it and uh you know then you've got the pressure of of the, the the supporters, the media who say, oh well, this guy he's a he's a flop, and uh, but I mean he's been here two three months, you know. So it's sometimes second that second season is the most important one, and the first season is just a period of adjustment, and you have to give them the you know the benefit of the doubt that they'll come good at the second season when they've got an understanding of 
the language, the culture, their teammates. Because um, even moving from you know a different team, you, you even if it's in the same language in the same country, there's always that period of adaptation. Hundred percent, yeah. And do the club help in any way with players with dealing with? I don't know what the French media is like, or but dealing with that kind of side of things. I mean, the the, the club are supportive of all all the players that come through, whether the international or French players. And I think there's a, I suppose there's more of a an emphasis on, you know player welfare and mental health as well these days as well and so I think that's that's important and if you can create an environment where the players feel safe you know discussing things like that then um, each club is different I can only speak for the club that I'm at but um, I think we do a good job of uh, of doing that and being approachable and obviously as as you know players come in you, you still need to build those relationships as well and and um bit by bit, I suppose, guys feel more comfortable as well. So um, I think I think a lot more clubs are trying to to help in that sense, though. Especially, you know, Pro D2, Federal 1, where they do have foreign players and they don't may not have the infrastructures and the resources all the time. Um, but I know there's, a, you know, more of an emphasis being placed on that. Yeah. And, um, yeah, because it's very new, as, as I was talking about media there, but, like, with social media as well, like, you know, every clown can say something or, you know, and like players will see things. And like you say, like a player can be called a flop after two months and they barely have unpacked their suitcase, you know, and like, there's just, there's so many challenges there now on that side of things that can really affect a player. And if a player is not as, I suppose, not, Strong-willed is probably the wrong word, but just, I don't know, not a, as comfortable with that. You know, they might read into these things, you know, maybe a 22-year-old, 23-year-old kid or someone who's young. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they start seeing these things and whatever, whatever. It could, could get you down pretty easily, pretty quickly. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I find that for the, the younger guys, their dependency of social media can also help them in a positive way. Um I know that some of them, you know, that even though they might get a few negative comments, some of them will focus on the positive and that will give them that extra bit of confidence that they need. Um, it's, yeah, it's very hard because everyone just, I suppose, deals with it in a different way. And um, you might be tempted just to look at the negative comments and focus on the negative comments. But I feel that maybe with the younger generations, they, since they've had access to it for a longer period of time, they may be more at ease and just shrug it off. Uh, you know, it's just it's social media. It is what it is. I'll focus on the positives. And I wonder whether the mindset um, is changing in that regard. And, you know, those maybe in their mid to late 20s did struggle more looking at the negative comments and reading the negative comments and focusing, whereas the younger guys are just like, well, Hopefully their confidence is, you know, there that they just shrug it off and they go, well, it's just a keyboard warrior, you know, just a troll and and just crack on. Uh, but I guess time will tell. Time will tell with uh, with that because, you know, the the influence that it can have. I know that the NBA coaches were struggling to get guys off their phones in between quarters um, because they'd be checking social media to see what people were saying about them. 
Um, so it's it's a tricky one. I don't know if there's any one way to to control it or to to curb it, but um, I think time will tell as to how we as coaches you know, help players through it, or guide them through it, and how players and athletes in general, you know, use social media. Yeah, that's a brilliant point you make in that uh, people, I think we're a similar age, our age, um, you know, like uh, definitely would have focused on negative things more so. And I think humans in general, we are more inclined to focus on negative. And that's why the news is just always negative. It's everything that's wrong because it grabs our attention versus the good stuff. But yeah, like you say, those younger people have grown up with it, so they get it well there's a good chance like and that makes such that makes perfect yeah. sense that they understand it better than we do i think sometimes there's an arrogance we think as we're older that we know things or whatever yeah. i don't know but that's a yeah great point and on that at the nba i remember even like that was the last season seeing a player after the warm-up coming in before they put their jersey on taking their phone out and i was like the other coach said put your phone away like you know yeah some some sports i think probably very different in that regard rugby still is quite old school but i'm sure it'll be changing you know maybe 10 15 years who knows where it'll be at but i think the nba smaller squads i've i've never worked with in basketball so i can't i can't judge or i can't tell but it must be an interesting dynamic to work with it's something that i've always wanted to try and you know, have a conversation with a NBA coach because playing 82 games in the season, then the playoffs. It's a lot of game time. It's a lot of time on the road together. It's a small group. You know, how do you keep those guys, especially like we, we talk about the younger guys as well who, who've grown up with this dependency on, on social media, uh, regardless of the good or bad comments that they get. But it's a dependency and, you know, it's you can't just come in and change everything because you know like, like i said the season's so long and you need the, the buy-in from the guys so um yeah it's, it's something that I've, I've asked myself many times i've just i've not had the opportunity yet to, to do any uh, professional development with uh any nba teams but it's it's on my uh, bucket list hopefully one day to be able to do that yeah good that's very good let me know when you get that conversation save it and uh, yeah. send it out because yeah like a lot of um high performance as well be it individual or team is blocking out the outside noise so whether it's good or bad like you can't get high on the goods the good stuff or too low on the bad stuff it's just all noise and it's it's not associating with that you know and but like you say those players are there all the time younger players on social media so like they're it would nearly have to get in like it's easier when you hear of coaches 20 years ago saying don't talk to media or don't talk to that guy or read his article in the newspaper. But, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's interesting. That's a good one. I think coaches now are probably smarter about it and they can use, you know, articles in the media to, to their, uh, to their advantage. Um, you know, it could be the, the us versus them mindset. It could be the circle of the wagons, you know, this is our, our sort of house, our domain. Um, so, so, so I know some coaches play off that. And I suppose there's a, even in rugby, a lot of 
some international coaches will play off that as well and just you know prod the media hoping for a reaction the reaction that they want in order that some of it can you know get the players firing as well um but it's uh I suppose that comes with a lot of experience as well of handling handling the media yeah obviously Eddie Jones is the master yeah he's yeah, so good agreed. he's so good I love him yeah I think I think you know there's guys like that who you know, will know will go into a press conference and know exactly what they want to get out of it even though it might seem you know off the cuff and his responses might come out you know as if he's He's just having a conversation. I, th- I, th- I think he probably goes in knowing what he wants out of it. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And uh, yeah, he's taught, I listened to his two books and um, yeah, he, ta- he says that how he, he knows that he's talking to his players through when he goes into a press conference because their wives or parents or siblings or friends will be telling them what Eddie Jones is doing or whatever. It'll get to them. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, I mean, that's, I suppose, the power of it, the power of the media. Maybe not social media, but definitely traditional media. Yeah. And going back to, you mentioned there being in Spain, chat to me a little bit about how, just leaving Australia, how you got to Spain and then how you started coaching. So I went to went to Spain when I was uh, 19 in um during my gap year, so in 2007, I was there for three months and ended up playing a, a sevens tournament, just a friendly sevens tournament. And I got asked if I wanted to to stick around the following season to to play in the, in the Spanish league um, with Alcobendas Rugby. And so my three months ended up becoming eight years. And uh, I did my ACL and meniscus as well, and pretty much that six months after after that seventh tournament and uh, that took me out of the game for about 10 months and wanting to stay involved because I'd arrived in Madrid uh, by myself 19 not speaking the language um, rugby was where I had I suppose my big social circle as well and so I wanted to stay involved with the club and help out where I could even though you know I wasn't able to play and train so I suppose that's where I started coaching in unofficial capacity and giving uh, what I thought was probably good advice. Uh, who knows, looking back, if it was. But, um, yeah, I suppose that was the, the start of it. And then um, later on, I became a player coach, um, which we, we spoke about, which is, you know, a difficult role to to, to fulfil and something I... I would struggle to do again. Um, and then an opportunity came during the, the financial crisis. There was a, you know, 40% unemployment in Spain between 18 and 35 year olds. So I looked for greener pastures and I found a, a startup company in New York and I uh, started working in marketing there. This is 2011, 12. And um, I worked with a, the women's sevens in Houston, the inaugural sevens tournament there is a, basically as a liaison officer, I just applied and made a mind sent me the USA rugby uh, link. And you know, so I was down the road, obviously Houston, New York, not quite next door, but I was in the same country. So I applied and I managed to get the, uh, the role for the week. And then 
once I was there, I was just, you know, back in the rugby circle and I got the, uh, got the itch again to, to be back in that kind of environment. And um, so from there, I stayed in touch with uh, Steve Lancaster, who's the high performance manager at the Crusaders and who just arrived as high performance manager at Rugby Canada and um, told him if there was anything, you know, and ever came up, then I'd be willing to relocate, you know, um, the next day pretty much. And it took about six months, but he, he reached out and he, he said we might have an opportunity as a, a national program's assistant. And that basically entailed being everything from, you know, an analyst to an assistant to the manager on tour to, uh, you know, picking up players from the airport, uh, the sevens players when they come back from from the circuit. And, yeah, it was, I was a bit of a jack of all trades, but it was good because it, it gave me exposure to everything. And, you know, I, I was back in the, in, in the fold, um, so to speak. So... That carried on for three months as that. And then I was asked to go to the Women's World Cup in 2014 um, as the, as the uh, performance analyst. And then working with Francois Rattier, he, he and I had a, a good, uh, good relationship. And he, he, uh, he knew I was keen on coaching. So the skills coaching part sort of developed there. And I would, you know, do some, some stuff with some of the players and, I ended up on the men's tour with him, the America's Rugby Championship Tour in 2016, followed by the the Women's World Cup in 2017 in Ireland. So, yeah, it was, again, something that, a bit like Spain, I was meant to be there for three months and ended up being, being there for a few years. So, um, I suppose that, the, again, both, both reasons why were rugby. And I think rugby's got the, the you know, the the possibility of opening doors for you uh, anywhere in the world as you can probably attest to but um i think it's something that's that's powerful and you know even if you're a former player or you know you just want to play socially i think it can open all kinds of doors and help you build you know a great network yeah 100 percent. that's brilliant and uh you're dead right if you're like open to if you're open to it yeah it can there's so many possibilities everywhere yeah and uh chat to me a bit at the start um the when you started out coaching like i remember starting coaching and it's not easy like i was playing and then i started coaching under under 17s back in ireland probably like eight eight years i don't know eight ish years ago and i remember being like freezing and be like oh uh, and how did you find it in a foreign language so when you're in spain um so in, doing it in Spanish in a foreign language, I think, is a great test for any coach uh, because, you, like I said before, you don't have the vocabulary. You can't mix your words. You're more to the point. You're more direct without coming off as, you know, brash in that sense because the players around you understand that you're a foreigner and that you're doing the best that you can. Um, so I think in that sense that the message gets through a lot more um, directly and um, it does have its, when you have to have tough conversations, it's hard because you can't always express yourself the way you want to um, predominantly off the pitch. But when you're on the pitch, I think it's, it's a, you know, it's definitely helpful. And then as far as the coaching style, I guess when, when we start out, we, we coach 
what we know and, and what we experienced from the guys who coached us. And um, so you sort of emulate that style without really realizing, you know, necessarily that whether it's your own style of coaching. And um, once you understand and you get a bit more experience, then you start, or at least for me, I, I would pick up, you know, a few bits and pieces from different coaches that I encountered. But, you know, when I first started, you, you, you didn't really know the ins and outs of coaching. You just, you went with the flow and if you saw something or, um, I still, I guess I still saw it more of as a player through a player's eyes and how I could help the players on my team as opposed to, you know, looking at the bigger picture. I suppose I was more focused on the, on the details and, you know, the technical and, and tactical rather than, you know, the, the man and management and, um, the relationship side of it, which, like I said, comes later on and you, you realise the importance of it. Uh, but at the start, it's just purely technical and tactical and just trying to, to help the guys around you. Yeah. And did you, were you like learning phrases or were you, so you, would you think of your session plan and then like find out how, what those phrases are, how you would coach that and get your vocabulary right? Honestly, at that time, mate, I, I I probably didn't. I probably I would I'd I'd you know write down the session. I'd, I'd do my session plan, um, but then I'd I'd probably rely on a player that would speak English to translate live if there was yeah. something I couldn't I couldn't get across. Um, I don't think my my preparation at the time was so much focused on how I delivered the message compared to what I wanted to deliver. Um, and that we know it makes a massive difference how you did, how you deliver it. But uh, I think, yeah, my, my focus was all on the what. Um, what can we get out of the session? And, and you know, how can I help the guys uh, around me improve? But how I delivered the message probably wasn't my, my priority in retrospect. Yeah. But it's a good idea. And I know that, for example, now looking at Paul Gustard, you know, he'll ask me, how do you say this before the session starts? And I see that, the, the, I suppose, the attention to detail that he brings to every session. Um, and you understand, you know, why he's had the career he's had as well. Um, but I, I assume it was the same when he went to, to Benetton in Italy. And, you know, those words, those keywords that he would need to use uh, before a session or in a meeting, he would already have a grasp. Yeah, because no, just thinking about it, it's like it'd be scary for me. Like you know, if I went out and like didn't, I know a bit of French. But like if I went out to Spain or Italy or something, like it'd be like wash. Like I, you know, it's so I'd want to have those stuff just so that I wouldn't be literally not able to say a word out there. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's daunting, but like I said, that you. You've probably got the the empathy of the players because you are the foreigner, and they know that you're there. Especially, you know, for me when you know I was nineteen or twenty years old, so I was super young, and I was injured, and they probably already knew them, uh, their teammate. So I probably had, a, I suppose, an a easier time. Uh, doing it but they knew that I was there 
just because I wanted to stay involved and I wanted to, to help them. Um, I wasn't, you know, getting paid for it. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I just wanted to help. And so I suppose they understood that. And, you know, in, in any grassroots program, if you go to another country and you, you just want to help and, you know, they want to, the, the, the guys and the girls who are playing, they just want to get better. And I think if you go there with that open mindset and you go, right, well, I don't speak the language, but you feel com comfortable enough that you could go to, to China tomorrow and go, right, they just want to learn. They just want to get better. I'll try and dumb it down as much as I can from my own personal, you know, perspective, even though I don't, you know, maybe say two words in Chinese, but that'd be it, you know. Um, it's, I think it's I think it's a great challenge. It's a great sort of test. Even if you're on, you go on holiday somewhere and you just look up your local rugby club and offer them lend a hand, and then just put yourself in that scenario, put yourself in the in in the in, you know in there and see how you go. Yeah, it's a good one for sure. Definitely, yeah, just jump in and help out somewhere. And it's a, a great point you make as well about um, what you're doing. Taking the stop thinking about yourself and think about them. So they think about like they just want to learn so stop worrying about yourself so much about like oh will i look silly here if i do this or that or whatever whatever and just think about helping them and it's far easier then i think i think i think that's right if if you're if you're in the professional game it's different because eyes are on you you're there for a job you're there you know for a reason you've been picked you've been hired for a reason by other people than the players you know, so there's, there's, it might be different in that sense, but I'd say, you know, the vast majority of, of amateur clubs, they'll, will welcome the help. They'll, they'll, they'll be, they'll be wanting to, to get something out of the session, especially if they've only got two to three sessions a week. Um, you know, they get, you get a different voice, you get uh, someone else's experience. There's always something you can, you can have. And I feel that, players at grassroots level are going to have a more open mindset because they know that they don't know it all. Um, I mean, just like the coaches, I suppose, if you, you have to have that mind, the exact same mindset, even if you are at the top of the game. But, you know, it's a different, it's a different approach. If you're, if you're at the grassroots level, you still have levels to your game you can add. And so any bit of information, at least for me when I was a player, if I could pick a bit of information from different players, from different coaches, I would do it. Um, but I think that's, you know, that's everybody is different in that sense as well. But uh, I think at one point in your career, you do realise that, hold on, there's something more that I can get because I won't be able to know it all by myself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so after then, when you left... Canada you're with Rugby Canada and then you went to Luxembourg talk to me about then so you just just got involved with the national team there and then a club side there yeah so the um my wife ended up finding a job here in Luxembourg which is why we came here and um I'd been in touch I'd, I dropped a message to basically all the rugby clubs and unions in the area because I knew that I was finishing up at Rugby Canada because Francois Rotier was, was moving on from his role and there'd be a new staff coming in. And so, um, yeah, basically, as soon as I arrived, I had a coffee with the head coach. Um, 
Jonathan Flynn, who, funnily enough, has just started a role in Spain at Alcobendas as a, a Scotsman who speaks French but doesn't speak much Spanish. So it would be an interesting, interesting one to talk to to see how he gets on this season, uh, coaching in a different language. But um, So I started working with them, with their, their men's program, the 15s and the 7s programs. Um, and after the first year, I got asked if I wanted to help with the club that played in the, the Bundesliga in the German competition. And uh, I, through through that, I met um, Kobus Potgitter, who at the time was the director of rugby at the World Academy, who was the, I suppose it was the home base of Heidelberg rugby, who qualified for the Challenge Cup and uh, were on the up uh, in German rugby. And he was also the head coach of the German setup. And so he, uh, he was in, he then moved on to Stade Français, and so it's it's uh, come full circle in that sense. But yeah, it was a very different, um, I suppose, a very different setup to to Rugby Canada um, over here, and it took me a while to adjust first to to you know the player numbers, uh, to the mindset. Uh, Canadians, as you know, are very patriotic people. They, you know. They'll, they'll do anything for to represent their their country and so you've you, and you've also got the numbers there whereas well as and not to mention the the sort of the aesthetic and the sporting backgrounds that they have um much like you know the 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 us uh, but over here where sports was probably not you know viewed in the same light and of the same importance um People came to Luxembourg for work and then decided to play rugby, uh, as opposed to came here to, rug- to play rugby and then and then worked on the side. So I had to adjust, and I felt pretty, um, I suppose, pretty lucky that in retrospect I was able to work with, um, you know, a, a tier three nation like Luxembourg because I was then able to say, well, I've seen the difference from a tier two nation to a tier three nation to a tier one nation when I was working with France. So I know what it's like to have the infrastructure, but I also know what it's like not to have, you know, 10 tackle shields and only have two tackle shields at training, but you've got 40 people there. So it, it's all part of the, the development uh, that you get as a coach and having to think on, on your feet and you never know who's going to turn up to training. The weather plays an effect on who turns up to training uh, maybe there's, I don't know, there's a football match on at night. And so that affects the numbers of training. So I, um, I learned, I learned a lot and, um, once it was a great, a great experience cause I got to see some, some countries that I, I, I probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. Uh, you know, we played against, uh, the likes of Ukraine, Denmark, um, played a rugby Europe seven tournament in Bosnia. Um, oh, it was it was it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, there were some challenges, obviously, but we. Uh, I suppose the highlight was when we beat Sweden in Sweden. We were one of world rugby's biggest climbers. And so you know, it was it was uh, on the on their website. They sort of had, I think it was probably, I think it might have even been Ireland, one of the biggest climbers at that time. And then underneath, you had Luxembourg, and you're there going, right? Well, you know what? That's it's something. It's something. So no, I look back at it with uh, with fond memories, and then um, I think at the same time it also really inspired me to want to get back into the, the professional setup and get back into what I was 
I suppose, uh, what I've been working with with Canada in that sense. And uh, that led me on to my role with France and uh, and now with Stad. So, yeah, no, definitely, uh, definitely a, a time that I was fond of, though. Nice. Brilliant. And uh, something I find interesting there. So you you kind of uh, said that that kind of lit the fire. You wanted to get back into the professional game. So you first up decided in your mind or decide yourself, this is something I'm going to do. And then how did it happen or how did it happen? Yeah. I mean, I, I realized when I was in New York and I didn't want to go back to that startup company after doing the week in, in Houston, that this is something that I wanted to, to pursue and I wanted to give it a crack. Like, I had no idea where it would take me. I, I wouldn't have, like, there's no way I would have thought that it's taken me where it's taken me. Um, and I suppose that's that was the unpredictability of it, and maybe the 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 risky side of it is you know that everything was three months at a time at, sometimes, and then you get into the professional game and it's you know short term contracts anyway, or two years if you know two years is a good contract. So there's always this sort of instability to it. But in New York, I realised I want to get back into the sporting environment and you know into the into the rugby more specifically, but. When I was in Luxembourg, my, I suppose, desire to coach on a daily basis was, you know, that's why in my second season, I went and had the national team and the and the club. It actually gave me, a, you know, a few extra days of coaching a week and I loved it. So mm. I realised how much I missed it. And uh, it was tricky because in the region, there's no professional setups, not even on the French border, you know, there's... The east of France is probably the, the weakest, um, you know, rugby area um, in France. So it'd been different if I'd been, you know, in the Spanish border, the southwest. There's all kinds of clubs I could have gone to there, and you know, seen if I could if I could get some uh, get a kick there. But yeah, it was just something that just an urge, and I, I wanted to to get the the feeling, I suppose, the adrenaline that I'd experienced. Uh, firstly, in 2014, when we played in Paris, the World Cup, played World Cup final against England, and we played a World Cup semi final against France. And funnily enough, it was at Stade Francais Stadium. So, again, another full circle there. But, you know, and it was a packed house and we won it. And yeah, the, the emotions and the adrenaline were just something else that I'd never experienced. And, and I think it was probably just a, a desire to get back, you know, from a a selfish point of view and experience those highs. Uh, but then at the same time, just having that daily, you know, connection with the players and, you know, feeling like you've accomplished something by helping them, you know, achieve a goal, whether it's to go on and play for a, a higher team or, you know, just for them to get better week to week and improve on their performances. So it was a bit of a mix of both really, but something that was hard to replicate on a full-time basis in Luxembourg. Yeah, and so you got involved. You got involved with France first of all, didn't you? Before yeah. Stad. Yeah. Oh, so Stad. Stad. I was actually I was helping out with the under 18s at Stad, um, but pretty much on a voluntary basis. I'd, I'd go on a couple of days a week, get on the train like I do now, um, and uh, one of the coaches there, he actually worked within the, the FFR and told me there might be a vacancy as a performance analyst with the under-20s. And even though for me it wasn't 
you know, a coaching role, it was still a foot, you know, back into the professional game, working with some, you know, guys who are playing top 14 already, um, being able to, to learn from, you know, some, some top coaches and just being back in that environment. So in that high performance environment. So yeah, I applied, I applied for that and I am, um, I ended up with the under twenties for, for a couple of seasons, um, couple of six nations campaigns and then that led me on to, to doing the the summer tour with the, the senior men's team to to face the wallabies and summer of 2021 and um yeah again I, I wouldn't have been able to to imagine that you know working in luxembourg 18 months ago with the national team and then suddenly you're touring with the you know the senior french team to play in the wallabies in three tests so it's just <laughs> It's just funny how rugby can open those doors, and if you've got the the mindset and open mindset, just wanting to learn. And I think I think um, rugby still has that place where it's it's not as mainstream as football is, and so we still have we've kept that. I don't want to say amateur um, attitude, but I suppose the rugby the rugby circles are smaller. In football and that can work in your favor because you know players will know how you work or other other coaches will know how you work and that helps build confidence and build rapport with uh with other other teams and i think that's that's definitely a benefit that rugby has and granted in in 20 or 30 years that might change we might get get to the same level as football but for the time being i think there's still that element of you know, oh, he's a good guy, so let's give him a crack. And I think I'm, I'm, we're, we're very, we're very much based on on character in rugby, um, mainly character first, and even at the top end, it's still a lot of it is based on your character. Whereas on our other sports, you know, if you look at the NFL Combine, the Combine doesn't tell you much about character; it tells you more about the physical traits. Um, but I think rugby still maintain that element of uh, of amateurism, where you know we judge we judge you know people that are in it on on how they are as people first. Hundred percent, and uh, yeah, it is so important. Person's character, and yeah, I get you with that kind of am- amateur ethos, and yeah, hundred percent, and uh, fair play with that. Like you said about um, a mindset of being open minded, but it's actually hearing it like uh what you did had a an ambition of where you wanted to go and work very hard like there's a direct line between getting on a train for two or three hours to volunteer with stad francais academy give up your time to then going on a tour with the french national team and it's like no hats off um i just you know i hear of different people wanting different things but not willing to put in work you know it's like oh i want to get here and like someone pay me now or someone, you know, uh, just with many different things, you know, and it's uh, yeah. just got to go and do it. Especially in coaching, like we all coach for a long time, like for free. So, and why do you want, the biggest question is why do you do it then? And it's because you enjoy it, you know, you, you get something out of it. So, you know, if it's by helping the, the, the kids that you coach or the seniors that you coach, the men, the women, it, it, you know, there's, there's something about it that you enjoy. So 
for me, sitting on a train, getting a, you know, a train off my own dime every, you know, twice a week when I knew I wasn't getting paid for it, but it still meant that I was able to be in that mold and in the, in the be around guys who were, you know, better coaches than myself and being able to learn from them and just being able to try and help out where I could, then, you know, I think, like you say, it's, it, it, it does pay off, but it's, uh, yeah, it, I suppose it, the mindset is the mindset is above all um, a key to it. I think, from my from my perspective, anyway, I think that's what's opened the doors. Yeah, for sure, and that you love doing it as well. That's why we all start out, and that's why you just you just love doing it. Yeah, and yeah. it goes from there. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, hey James, thanks a for your time. Been on real chat and uh, second time round. Pleasure, Ron. <laughs> appreciate it no worries thanks for having me on cheers for listening in today this was actually the second time that i sat down to chat with james for the pod last time i was in bordeaux which was in august with one of the teams that i work with and the hotel i was staying in had crap wi-fi so i went into the city center and i found a starbucks it was pretty busy but I thought that even though I didn't have my proper microphone with me and my setup that my airpods would do the job so we had a great chat then the next day I went to edit it and all I could hear was a bustling French coffee shop with James in the background so I'd forgotten to connect my airpods to the zoom <laughs> but anyway mistakes happen we got there the second time around please send the podcast on some friends and please would you leave a rating and a review now for the pod wherever you are listening whatever platform that is if you want to get in touch with me please do so would love to hear from you and you can do so through my website offfieldrugby.com my instagram at offfieldrugby or linkedin which is my name Brian Moylet. With the podcast and organizing these interviews and having these chats, sometimes I'm like super organized and I have three or four or five backed up and then other times I literally will be getting one done the day before I put it out or the day of editing it and putting it all together. And I've said to myself that I'm putting one out every week because I know that when I listen to podcasts, I want it to be regular. Like, I don't want one... I don't want to be listening to a podcast that an episode comes out and then I don't hear of it for three weeks. I'd switch off pretty quick. But anyway, so I hold myself to one a week. I put one out every weekend. And as of now, I have been busy and I've got five or six backed up. And I have had some very cool conversations with some brilliant people and i'm really excited to get them out to you over the next few weeks so make sure you are subscribed wherever you listen whatever platform that is also i have been working on a very big project over the last quite a while i don't know probably more than a year a long time actually to be honest and 
probably the second biggest project behind the podcast maybe or maybe just as big and yeah excited to announce that and get it out to you before the end of October. Thank you to Luxembourg international rugby player Oshin Kilgallen who connected James and I. And if you want extra podcasts from me around the mental side of the game, you can join the first 15 on patreon.com forward slash off field rugby. And the link for that is in the show notes here. On that podcast, I share strategies and frameworks that will help you feel more confident, overcome setbacks and play in the zone. Have a brilliant rest of your day. As always, thanks a mil for clicking in. Cheers.